This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the NFL Combine is over in Hallelujah. I just finished reading five days five days in New York papers where they have the Giants A, taking Saquon Barkley, B, taking the next best quarterback to Sam Darnold, and C, passing on both and taking guard Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame. So I think it's safe to say they have their bases covered. And I think it's also safe to say that two months part of the draft, I'm already sick of it. Maybe Ron is too, because you know what? He's not with us today. Escaped to L.A. And I think Ron's trying to escape these mock drafts as well. But um, yeah. that's why they're called mocks. It's throwing names up against the wall. See what sticks. Just do what I do. Ignore them. The teams yeah, are exactly. talking, and they're the only ones doing the drafting. Well, Goose, as you know better than most since you covered the Combine for 25 years, that event is held and has been held for decades in Indianapolis and is held inside Lucas Oil Stadium, where outside there's now a statue of former Colts great Peyton Manning. Now, I don't know if you've seen a Goose, but I did, or at least I saw a photo of it. The statue is nice and all that. It looks like Peyton Manning. But the plaque below it refers to him as Peyton Manning, the sheriff, with, quote, the sheriff in quotation marks. <laughs> Quick question. When was Peyton Manning ever known as the sheriff? Well, I'm guessing he was probably known as a sheriff in the Colts locker room. And you know the sign posted in every locker room in every sport across the nation? What you say here, what you see here, what you hear here, let it stay here. Well, it all must have stayed in that Colts locker room, the sheriff thing. Yeah, sort of like Vegas, I guess. Hey, you know what? The only NFL player I remember, Goose, called the sheriff was the safety for the Chargers back in the 90s, named Stanley Richard. You probably remember him because he's out yes, of the University sir. of Texas. But he was such a non-impact player that one local writer started calling him <laughs> Deputy Dog. Yes, but he was a pretty good safety at Texas. Good enough, in fact, to become a top 10 pick of San Diego. Unfortunately, the Chargers thought they were drafting Earl Thomas, not Stanley Richard. Well, no sheriffs or deputies on today's show, but we do have one pretty good linebacker in Zach Thomas of the Miami Dolphins and one great quarterback in Jim Kelly, whom we interviewed last year. We're replaying that interview in light of his announcement last week that Jim's cancer has returned. We'll also sit down with Hall of Fame voter Darren Gann of Pro Football Talk as our Best of the Rest series rolls into Carolina and hear from Hall of Fame voter Armando Salguero of the Miami Herald on what exactly owner Stephen Ross is saying these days. And he's saying a lot. That's a lot coming up. So let's get to it, and we will right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. You know, I was just reminded that Daylight Savings Time starts this weekend, and I don't know, it seems like that happens earlier and earlier every year. Uh, I, Goose, you remember when we were in high school or college? I don't, I don't care which. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But remember when Daylight Savings Time was in late April? I mean, I, I always look forward to it, not only because it meant longer daylight to each day, but because it, it meant the end of school was coming. That was great. But now, now it's March 11th, and the NHL season isn't over. Well, okay, it's over in Montreal, but, but then again, in other parts of the league, I think down where you are, Goose, man, the season won't be over when school is out. Well, I'm an early riser, so it'll be a lot lighter when I walk the dog in the morning and oh, at night. Okay. okay, well, what are you going to do with that extra hour of daylight at night? Oh, probably get some golf balls. Ah, good. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Maybe... Bikes, more hikes, dog walks, 
Maybe just maybe going to UConn women's basketball games, Goose. I talk to you all nice. the time about it. But um, I don't know if – did you see what they did to Cincinnati the other night? Terrible. They went off 32 straight points to end a half where they led 43-5. to five. 43 to 5 at the half of an American Athletic Conference tournament. Tournament. Semi-final game. Gooseman, when's the last time you remember a basketball team scoring 5 points in the first half of any tournament semifinal? Clark, I wouldn't know because if a team was scoring that few points, I'd have stopped watching midway through that half, and that's not my idea of entertainment. You'd have to be a big UConn fan to watch we don't UConn have, basketball. We don't have much to do here in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, can't wait to watch the next uh, Husky women basketball game. Uh, in most other parts of the country, they're tuned into another game, and, and that would be the NFL free agency game, mostly because they believe it can turn their team into the next Super Bowl opponent for the New England Patriots. But, Goose, I know I've talked to you over the years about this. You're not a big fan of free agency. Why? Here's why. The Dolphins gave Ndamukong Sue a record $117 million contract in free agency three years ago. And since his arrival, they've lost more games than they've won. You cannot build a champion team, championship team through free agency. The draft always has been and always will be the proper path. Now, you can fill a hole on your roster in free agency, but you cannot fill up your roster with free agents. Go the homegrown route, not the mercenary route. Okay, I agree with you on that, but I will mention this. Um, last year, two of the top free agents uh, were Alshon Jeffrey, wide receiver, and Calais Campbell outside pass rusher, and, and they did make a difference, and I realized they filled holes. But then so did A.J. Boy, who was the top cornerback in free agency. He went to Jacksonville, too, along with Campbell. And, and he and Calais Campbell helped turn the Jags into New England's last AFC championship game opponent. They actually won a division, made the playoffs. They go to the championship game, came this close to winning, and Jeffrey helped turn Philadelphia into the Patriots' last Super Bowl opponent. But still, they were complimentary pieces. Carson Wentz was the reason the Eagles became a Super Bowl contender virtually overnight. And there were two recent first-round draft picks in Jacksonville, running back Leonard Fournette and cornerback Jalen Ramsey. Those two guys gave the Jaguars their swagger. Carson Wentz? I thought it was Nick Foles. That would be January. (laughs) Give me Wentz the other four months of the season. All right. Um, now put your GM hat on, Goose. You know okay. personnel. Um, you're the Minnesota Vikings, um, and you're Rick Spielman. Um, all three of your quarterbacks, Teddy Bridgewater, Case Keenum, Sam Bradford, all three of them, they're free agents. So what do you do? You sign Kirk Cousins. You cannot trust Bradford's health. You can't trust Bridgewater's recovery. And the playoffs showed us you really can't trust Keenum. So if, if the Cowboys go all in on Cousins... With that defense and those receivers, I think Minnesota could easily become the favorite to land him. Okay, Goose, let's say Kirk Cousins went to Michigan. Do you still sign him? Of course. Good quarterback. <laughs> Michigan State quarterback. Best, best quarterback in the marketplace. <laughs> Give him the money. Uh, okay, well now and I'm if moving Tom Brady, you to... If Tom Brady went to Michigan State, he'd still be a good quarterback. Doesn't matter. He'd be a great quarterback. Yeah, that too. Um, now I'm going to ask you to be the GM of the New York Jets. Not so enviable job, but you know what? You're going to be the GM of the Jets now. Now, you have no quarterback. Uh, I know you have Josh McCown, but uh, you're not going anywhere with him. And, and besides, he's he's not young. Your age. Um, you, <laughs> he is my age, yeah. You have the sixth pick in the draft. Do you try to sign a free agent like, well, let's say, Kirk Cousins or maybe Case Keenum? Or do you use that sixth pick on a young 
quarterback. Here's the dilemma. If you draft a young quarterback and play him, you're looking at another very high draft pick in 2019, and I'm not sure the fans would be all in on that, especially Mm -hmm. if the quarterback you get is a third or fourth quarterback off the board. So my guess is the Jets try to sign one in free agency and also draft one. New York is a town that you cannot stay bad and survive. Yeah, I think Kirk Cousins would be a good fit for New York only because he's such a grounded guy, too. I don't think that uh, city's too big for him. I think he'd be fine there, don't you? He'll be fine anywhere he goes, frankly. He's the best quarterback in the marketplace. He'll make wherever he goes better. Uh, But I think he's going to choose a situation that gives him the best chance to win. I think Jets may be a long Um, shot. One last before he goes. One of the top free agents is a guard. That's Andrew Norwell of the Carolina Panthers. He's a guy who was a first-team All-Pro last year, so he's really good. Now, we don't seem to value guards all that highly in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, you and I both know we've kept eight-time All-Pro Alan Fanica. Waiting three years already. I don't get that, but we have. But how much would you value someone like Andrew Norwell? You, know, you saw what a difference a quality blocking front made for Jared Goff this season. You know, after the Rams mm-hmm. signed a couple aging but veteran pro bowlers, you know, Norwell is a young guy. He can have an impact immediately and for the duration of the contract. You know, I would think teams like Seattle, Denver, Houston, right. Indianapolis want to be contenders with big-time protection issues, would have an interest in a blocker of Norwell standing. This is a good player, and he's going to get a lot of money. Yeah, and especially, Goose, we saw what happened with Atlanta and Matt Ryan a couple years ago when they solidified the inside protection for him, got the center, and, and it really made a difference, and they went to the Super Bowl. The better your line, the better your quarterback. Well, he's not a free agent, nor is he playing today. But if he were, former Miami safety Jake Scott would gain a lot of interest. And you know what? He already has from our Rick Gosselin in this week's State Your Case which he wrote for us on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. You can read it there, or you can just listen to Gooseman tell us now why he believes Jake Scott is Hall of Fame worthy. The Miami Dolphins retired jersey number 13 in 2000, a fitting tribute to the most prolific passer in franchise history. But the Dolphins could have taken number 13 out of circulation long before Dan Marino ever got a chance to wear it. And that would have been just as fitting a tribute to one of the best defenders ever to play for the Dolphins' safety, Jake Scott. Now, he played only six seasons, but he packed so much production into those 84 games. He went to five Pro Bowls and was a Super Bowl MVP. He intercepted 35 passes for the Dolphins, which 42 years later still stands as the franchise record. He returned 127 career punts for 1,300 yards, which also remain franchise records. The Dolphins won four AFC East titles, three AFC championships, and two Super Bowls during his six seasons. He was a Pro Bowl performer in the NFL's only perfect season, that 17-0 march to a Lombardi Trophy in 1972. And Scott intercepted two passes in that 14-7 victory over the Redskins to capture Super Bowl MVP honors. But he fell out of favor with the Dolphins coach Don Chula after that 75 season, and let's just call it a personality conflict. George Allen loved older players, so Shula found an, an eager taker for his Pro Bowl safety in the Redskins. Although his run of Pro Bowls ended with the move to Washington, Jake Scott still had a knack for takeaways. He intercepted 14 more passes as a Redskin, including seven in his final season in 1978. He also had a seven-interception season with the Dolphins in 71 and an eight-interception season in 1974. So Scott intercepted 49 passes in his nine seasons and also recovered 13 fumbles. That's 62 takeaways, 126 career games, almost one every two games. 
He also intercepted five passes in the playoffs and recovered three more fumbles. He is tied with his former Washington Hall of Fame teammate Ken Houston on the NFL's all-time interception list with 49, but Houston played five more seasons. He also has one more career interception than Hall of Fame safety Willie Wood, and Wood played three more seasons. Yet Scott has never been discussed as a Hall of Fame candidate. His career deserves better. Agreed, Gooseman. Quick. Johnny Robinson, Cliff Harris, Eddie Metter, or Jake Scott? Well, with Jerry Kramer and Shine, Johnny Robinson is now the best player not in Canton. So start that list with Johnny Robinson. Okay, well, here's hoping at least one of those guys gets an audience in soon, because they all deserve one. We, however, we deserve a break, and we're going to take one. When we return, Hall of Fame voter Armando Salguero. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. the Miami Dolphins are back in the news again. And it's not about Jarvis Landry or Ryan Tannehill. It's about their owner, Stephen Ross. And he made headlines this week when he told the New York Daily News that his players would be required to stand for the national anthem. Now, of course, he says his comments were misconstrued and that he has no intention of forcing them to stand. Now, I'm not sure what's going on, but I am sure there's one guy who does know, and that's Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend of ours, Armando Salguero, the Miami Herald. Armando, before we get started, could you please stand when we're talking to you? I, <laughs> I will stand and put my right hand over my heart, and okay. uh, I'm at attention. <laughs> Hit me. Okay. okay, first things first. What the heck is going on here? I mean, the original quotes seem to speak for themselves. And, and, and what exactly does misconstrue mean? I mean, you either said it or you didn't, right? He said it. It's pretty clear that he said it. As a matter of fact, aside from the part about our players will stand next year, everything that was in that, uh, in that article he has said in the past. So I'm pretty confident that he said it. I'm also pretty confident that there was blowback, and that Steve Ross's heart is also with the players. And, and here's the thing, men. Um, we live in, a, I think, a country now where it's so polarized that you cannot possibly be the person who has respect for the anthem protesters and also has respect for the people who don't like the anthem protesters, including the President of the United States. And Steve Ross, in that Daily News article, he kind of showed both sides. And that's a sin. You're not allowed to do that anymore. That's bad, bad Steve Ross. Um, What I would say to you is, can we just kind of get along? Because (laughs) uh, it is possible to do both. It is possible to respect the president, and it is possible, as Steve Ross has done many times and has proven that he's done, to respect the, you know, the protests and the players protesting. Marno, what did, what did uh, Mr. Ross say during the season when the Dolphins had some protesters at the anthem, and how was all that received then by the Miami ticket-buying public? Well, what he said was, and he repeated it to the Post, uh, excuse me, to the Daily News, was that the conversation relative to the anthem protest changed. When it was originally happening in Steve Ross's mind, it was about social justice and, you know, 
having black people not be shot by police when they're unarmed and they don't deserve to be shot. And he believed, he being Ross, believed that when the president came out and said, you know what, this isn't just about that. This is uh, disparaging the national anthem and the military and uh, the flag. Ross bought that. He believed that fans bought that. And the reason that that is, is um, I know for a fact, as having covered the Dolphins for a long time, I was inundated uh, with emails of people saying, you know what, I'm done with the Miami Dolphins. They've got three guys, sometimes more, that kneel. I don't want to see that. I want to go to a football game and watch a football game. I don't want to go to a football game and be preached to, so forth, so on. So if I was getting a lot of those emails, I can only imagine that the Dolphins were getting, you know, 10, 15, 20 times more of those emails. And so that's what I think kind of changed his mind on the issue. Uh, Whether that's right or wrong, good or bad, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that's probably uh, his mindset. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And, and, you know, it's funny, Armando, I live in a small town, and uh, there are not a whole lot of people here, but I've run into numbers of them who say, I'm finished with the NFL for that very reason. Uh, I'm not going to be preached to by these guys who are making a gazillion dollars, um, and they want to tell me how to behave. And, and, you know, you can say uh, it's a small town, but that's sort of representative maybe of what's going on throughout the country. And uh, I I understand what's maybe what he's he's trying to say or do here. You've got to understand, he said these things, he was at a Jackie Robinson Foundation gala. He is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. Steve Ross is not, uh, you know, a guy who is uh, obviously not a racist. He is not a guy to be trifled with as far as putting his money where his mouth is in issues of equality and social justice and so forth. I mean, he has been out front. Um, so if one side is upset, here's the, the galling part about all this. Steve Ross in the last 12 hours has said things uh, out of both sides of his mouth. He said that he would make the Dolphins stand. He said that he would allow them to kneel. And by doing those two things, he made everybody upset. Yeah, right. Both sides. Okay, let's, let's move on to some more football-related topics. Where is uh, Jarvis Landry playing this season? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think it's going to be with the Miami Dolphins. Um, obviously, they have the franchise tag on him. Obviously, they are trying to trade him, and they've asked his agent to try to kind of look for teams interested in trading for him. Um, I imagine the Dolphins are not interested in trading him to, you know, like New England or somebody like that. You think? But, uh, yeah, seriously. Not that the Patriots would be interested anyway, but... Uh, he could do some significant damage there. Uh, I, I don't know where he's going to end up. I'm pretty certain it's not going to be with the Dolphins. Hmm. Well, Armando, what's the issue there? I mean, is it strictly money or does it go beyond that? It goes beyond that. Uh, you know, the money part, if you look at it, it's kind of ridiculous is what it is. Uh, you know, the Landry camp wanted a Devontae Adams-type contract, which is, what, an average of $14.5 million. 
supposedly, reportedly, they offered $13 million a year. So, really? That's what's keeping you apart? $1.5 million, and so you want to get rid of them? You want to trade them? That's not it. What is it is that for, I would say, the last year and a half, I've been hearing, you know, we want Jarvis to do it our way. We want Jarvis to fall into line. We want Jarvis to pay more attention to detail. Okay, so he's doing that now. We want him to show up to minicamp. Well, we want him to show up to, you know, training camp. He has to practice the way we want. They've been moving the goalposts back multiple times, and it shows me that they've decided that Jarvis Landry is not a guy that they want long-term. They don't want to commit to him uh, for three, four, five years. That's the thing. It's not necessarily the money. It is necessarily the amount of time. Um, they say that they're willing and able to keep him under the franchise tag and have him play in Miami for one year. Um, but one year is not four years. And so uh, they've managed him. He's been managed. Uh, I think that probably both sides would be better off going their separate ways. Marno, the, the number that sticks with me is 8.8 a catch. That is incredibly low for an elite receiver. Most of these guys are 13, 14. To be under 10, to be under 9 is unbelievable. What? Why? Why was that 8.8 after last year? Let's blame everybody, okay, Goose? <laughs> and, and this is why it's everybody's fault. Number one, Jarvis Landry is a very good slot receiver, a very good possession receiver. I think he ran a 4.68 at the Combine the year that he came out. Uh, he knows what he's doing and how to get open, but he isn't necessarily a stretch-the-field, game-defining kind of guy. So that's, that's one issue. The second issue is not Jarvis Landry's fault at all, and that is the Dolphins' offensive line was poor last year, and so they needed to get the ball out quickly. And you can't get down the field as a receiver if, the team is throwing bubble screens and, and little slants and stuff like that. And thirdly, the quarterback, uh, you know, they had a quarterback situation with Jay Cutler, who's 30, I believe, 33 years old. He didn't want to get hit. And so if you have a quarterback that's older and doesn't want to get hit and the offensive line is bad and your wide receiver is not fast, you've got an 8.8 yard per uh, catch average for the season. Hey, who does want to get hit? <laughs> True. Hey, hey Armando, um, speaking of the quarterback, I want to ask you about this. The Dolphins draft 11th, as you know. And there's speculation they could reach for a quarterback as an eventual replacement for Ryan Tannehill. Now, we've got about a minute left. But are you buying that? Yes. Uh, not so much the eventual replacement for Ryan Tannehill part, but definitely the replacement for Matt Moore. Uh, Matt Moore is the backup and has been. He's not coming back to the Dolphins. At least that's not what the plan is at this point. So they need someone behind Ryan Tannehill. Now, if that player can eventually down the road, you know, three years hence, take over, yeah, great. But if he can't, 
They need someone who they can stick in there in case Ryan Tannehill, who's missed the last 21 months of football with two knee injuries, uh, you know, in case he's not ready to go every single Sunday. Okay, Armando, thanks so much for the time. And you know what? You can sit down now, okay? <laughs> and what about the hand over my heart? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> optional. <laughs> hey, thanks, Talk to you guys. Thank thanks, you. Mom. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Armando Salguero, the Miami Dolphins from the Miami Herald. Up next, one of the guys Armando covered is trying to get into the hall. That'd be former linebacker Zach Thomas. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest should be familiar to you. Seth Thomas is one of the great tackling machines in NFL history, with 1,960 of them in his 13 year career. Now, most of those franchise record 1,866 to be exact with the Miami Dolphins, including a single-season record 195 in 2002. He led the NFL in tackles. He led in 2006-2, and I mention that because Zach Thomas competed for the tackle crown throughout the bulk of his career with fellow middle linebackers Ray Lewis and Brian Urlacher. Now, as you know, Lewis and Urlacher became first ballot Hall of Famers in the class of 2018. But Zach Thomas, he's now in his sixth year of eligibility and has never once been a Hall of Fame finalist. Now, that's the bad news. The good? He's here with us now. Zach Thomas, thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I should, Zach, do you ever think about the Hall of Fame? You know, sure. I mean, every year I get nominated. Uh, my family, friends, some fans all congratulate me. And uh, But they also, when I don't get to the finalists or any of that, uh, my family, they blow my phone up. So I gave them uh, one day to vent. <laughs> it's a new role that I, I gave them because, uh, you know, they're, they're biased. They're my biggest fans, and, and uh, they're proud of me. But... You know, I do that just to keep, you know, positive energy because the game's been so good to me. And it, it doesn't owe me anything. And that's why I look at it like this. If I deserve to make it, I will make it. And if I don't, it doesn't take anything away from what I'm proud of stuff. Because, you know, I think it's, for me, it's just all ego. And and I don't want to take anything away from the guys that did make it. So it's the best of the best. And uh, you rely on so many different things to make it there. And, you know, for, for me, you know, if I look back at when I was eight years old or any in high school or college, and I would have told myself then that I would have made the high school Hall of Fame and I made the college Hall of Fame, but I'd be on the bubble to make the NFL Hall of Fame. Oh, there's no complaining by me to make 13 seasons. When I was a kid, I would have made a deal with the devil to play one year. So it was, uh, it is really like just even to be in the conversation right now with you guys and even asking me is an honor. Well, Zach, there may be no complaining by you, but there is from some of us. I guess I mentioned you haven't been a finalist, and that's a bit surprising to us. How about you? Uh, um, that's, that's not something because you know what? I mean, I got to give it to, you know, Ray. And Brian, they both deserve it. And I mean, Ray has got to go down as the greatest ever. And I mean, his longevity, 
his passion that he played with, the energy that he had, and he made everybody around him better. It was fun to watch. You know, I watched a lot of his games. And, um, you know, that right there, I mean, you know, he deserves to get in. So maybe I still have a shot, especially with Brian getting in, because I felt like we definitely have matching numbers. And uh, he was a great player, too. But they're both great teammates, and that's what you – that's what the game's about. They played the game the way it's supposed to be played. I feel like I did the same. And that's why it's exciting for me that they even got in where maybe I have a shot. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I just want to jump in here, Goose, and, and mention that when we talked to Kevin Mawai and we asked him about Ray Lewis, he said, Ray Lewis didn't give me the most trouble. Zach Thomas did. Zach Thomas was the toughest guy for me to block. Well, that uh, I don't know about that because Kevin was a beast. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I tell you, you know, that's respect right there. And that's what I played the game for. And I got it when I played on the field. And 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 I understand with Lyman that, you know, they he's overlooked because he's the best player on the offensive line I've ever faced. And he had got the best of me a bunch of those games. So he's being a little humble about all that. But I, I feel like a guy like that, not being in first ballot, oh, man, I just wish – a lot of the riders not knocking you guys. I wish they knew what players and teammates and all that knew of that guy. Because when you got a center, most of the time, most offenses are driven where their main guy and their energy comes from their quarterback. But it came from the center with him. And that's respect right there. And I respect that guy. And that's awesome that he would even say such a thing. You know, Zach, the, the Hall of Fame has become such a stats-driven honor. Passers, runners, receivers have yardage and touchdowns. Pass rushers have sacks. DBs have interceptions. But the only true stat for middle linebacker is tackles. Yet the NFL didn't even start officially counting them until 2001, the sixth year of your career. So how do you judge players at your position? Well, you know, part of being a great middle linebacker and to my horn was just studying offenses. And, uh, you know, I, I studied coordinators. I studied, I was a film junkie. And, uh, you know, but I did study great players, too. And I studied linebackers. And, and I especially studied both Ray and Brian. And, uh, you know, they both had the production. And you've got to, everybody knows what the stats. That, that's important. You know, I'm not talking about the jump on the pile type tackles. It's the big plays, making a big play when the team needed it on third down, and making everybody around you better, like I mentioned earlier. But for me... That's not just talking about stats when I watch film. Because you're on defense when you're the middle linebacker. You're the quarterback of the defense. And when you really win, is pre-snap. It's the same thing as the quarterback. And I could tell if a linebacker's, you know, his alignment, things like that. I could tell if they were a great linebacker a lot. Because the best linebackers always align right, especially when it's a certain formation, different things. Because, you know, that's the most important thing. Because if you align wrong, the odds of winning on the play go down. And But if you know that with the alignment, your assignment, all those things, well, sky high you're going to win on the play because you beat yourself way more than the other team beat you. So I, I factor that pre-snap because I'm a linebacker. I mean, not most people look at that. But for me, that's important. I think the most important thing would be, you know, being a great teammate and – and I feel like I've you know, got a lot of respect for my teammates. I don't think you'll find one guy that said I wasn't a great teammate. And that's 
that's what I'm proudest about because that means you're being a great example. You're being professional. You're coachable. You love what you do. All those things. And that's what great players are because you guys know there's some guys and there's not many that go in the Hall of Fame just because of their stats and they weren't rumors of great teammates. Well, that, that, that doesn't get my respect. You know what I'm saying? So it's all about that is important. And the guys going in this year from Ray and Brian, those guys were great teammates. And that's what you love to see when guys get inducted into the Hall of Fame. We're speaking with Hall of Fame candidate and former Miami great Zach Thomas on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Zach, uh, you've mentioned Ray Lewis and Brian Erlacher, and so have we. We've talked a lot about both of them already. But the three of you were named to the NFL's all-decade team for the 2000s. Subconsciously or consciously, was there a competition at the middle linebacker position among the three of you during that decade? I mean, for me, yes. I mean, you're always aware. You're a competitor. And I'm sure they might say no. Um, they might say yes. But it's just, you know, what I was even mentioned earlier, just an honor to be on that decade team with those guys because they always motivated me. Cause I always kept an eye on what they did week to week because this is my motivation, you know. I mean, I always had a chip on my shoulder. And it was, you know, starting out, I guess, you know, when I first met Ray, we were doing all the All-American trips out of college. We did the Buckets Awards, and, you know, Kevin Hardy was there. Kevin went first pick. Ray went 20-something. And then I went 154th pick. So, yeah, man, I, I felt like, man, that chip, I mean, but I wouldn't change a thing because it motivated me. Even in the first three years, I felt like it was my best years. I didn't even make a Pro Bowl. But I'm not complaining about it because it motivated me. I was so, like, it drove me so much on preparation, on trying to be the best, um, to get the best out of myself. So I would say, yes, they, uh, we, we definitely, they knew of me, and I definitely knew of them, and we kept up with our stats and games, and, you know, we respected each other, though. Zach, let's address your stats. What toll did 1,900 career tackles take on your body? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of hits. So, but that's not that's not even that's not even counting the uh, collisions with the linemen. And you know, I I was a take on guy, and uh, you know, definitely with fullbacks and linemen. And um, you know, my body held up really good because I really took care of myself over my career because I had massage therapists, uh, stretch therapists on call, to acupuncturists. Uh, a hyperbaric chamber at the house. I thought health was number one because you, you can't give nothing to the team if you ain't playing. And and so, but the one thing that did let me down was my head. And uh, you can't get treatment for that. And, yeah, it took me down because, you know, me being small, um, I have to use my head to get the lineman off of me. So I have to punch them every time with my, my head to get them to swing one way or the other to get them off of me or you get mauled. And, and once I played only five games in 2007, um, after that, it was, it was pretty much time to call it quits because I couldn't be the same as aggressive guys I was. And it was humbling. It was definitely humbling because I tried everything. I even tried Botox, man, to try to help with my headaches and things like that. It's the craziest thing, but I, whatever it took. But once I got those, it was, uh, wasn't the same player. 
Well, as you well know, among those 1,900 career tackles, you had five career 20-tackle games. What exactly goes into making 20 tackles in a single game? Oh, man. I think I hate to say it, but bad defense or bad <laughs> offense, one of the two. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, something that, you know, if I was in between the 8 and 14 tackle range, then then I would uh, – it's usually a good game. But, yeah, you're – you know, at that time we weren't putting up a lot of points and sometimes our offense had bad days. But, yeah, man, that wasn't, that wasn't nothing I think I'd be proud about. <laughs> Zach, Jimmy Johnson began to head coach the Dolphins in 1996, and he drafted you in the fifth round and even cut veteran Jack Del Rio that summer to clear a path to you to the field as a rookie. How much of an impact did Jimmy have on your legacy as a football player? Man, that's my man right there. I owe everything to Jimmy. And I mean everything, man, because he gave me opportunity. It wasn't just because he drafted me because, you know, I was late. But just the risk to start me, a small white kid from Texas, a small town who didn't fit the part, and to throw me in the lineup from day one, um, I owe him everything for this legacy because you de- depend on so much from from your just being put in the right scheme, you know, everything from JT, who, JT, Jason Taylor, who made it last year first ballot, definitely deserved it, and Tim Bowens to to Sam and Pat to, you know, I could name so many guys, Trace Armstrong, that really took us to another level, and that was the fun years, you know, and that's what I appreciate because you're only as good as what's around you in talent. That's what I mentioned, you know, you're only as good as your GM and, Definitely, uh, Jimmy was a great GM for us, and and it you know the only disappointment would probably be uh, him retiring too early because we rode his picks for too long after that, and we had bad drafts, and it caught up to us. But but also Jimmy as a coach was even better for me because I learned how with preparation, and he was a great motivator, and I owe everything to that guy, and I definitely hope that he gets into the Hall of Fame because he deserves it, and I will be there. Hey, Zach, you've been a great guest for us. Thanks for the time, and best of luck with that Hall of Fame. Hey, th- thank you, guys. Appreciate having me. Thanks, Zach. You got it. That was former Miami right. linebacker Zach Thomas. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, maybe the offseason, but we never give our officials a day off. So, gentlemen. Yeah, start your engines. That means we're going to our two-minute drill minus Ron. So, Gooseman, you're all alone today. Take us down the field. Kobe Bryant just won an Oscar. So, who's the first NFL player to win one? Tom Brady. He puts on a show for the referees every time a defender hits him. I like it. The Oscars offered a jet ski, yes, a jet ski, for the shortest acceptance speech. What should the Hall of Fame offer? Two jet skis, but my fear is there still wouldn't be a winner. (laughs) That's right. What was Robert Kraft doing at Oscars parties? Well, if his quarterback can't win a Lombardi trophy in 2018, maybe he could win an Oscar. Darkest Hour, an Oscar-nominated movie or the story of another Brown season? The Darkest Hour was the 60 minutes Roger Goodell and Jerry Jones spent together at his appeals hearing this week. That's right. Get Out, an Oscar-nominated movie or the Jarvis Landry story? No, sir. Get Out is what NFL owners told Jim Caldwell and Jack Del Rio just 16 games after each took his team to the playoffs in 2016. 
That's what Ron did to us today, too, Gooseman. <laughs> True or false? Peyton Manning is in some broadcast booth this season. False. Life is too good right now being Peyton Manning, not just another talking head in a TV booth. Baker Mayfield says he can save the Browns. How? Change his name and his skill set to Otto Graham. <laughs> the Eagles were offered a second-round pick for Nick Foles. Bite or pass? If it's from Cleveland, I take it. Anyone else, I pass. Why didn't Sam Darnold do the passing drills at the Combine? When you are projected as the first overall pick of your draft, you do everything on your clock and your terms. When does the scouting combine move from Indianapolis? When the NFL owners, coaches, and scouts get tired of the shrimp cocktail at St. Elmo's. <laughs> hey, Goose, tell me why Saquon Barkley won't be the next Blair Thomas. Because he's bigger, stronger, and faster than Thomas, for starters. Former John Antrell Roll says whatever OBJ wants, that's Odell Beckham Jr., whatever he wants, he'd give him $10 million more. How about you? That's why Roll is an employee and not an employer, and obviously never will be. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have Jim Kelly, the best players not invited to the Combine, as well as the best Carolina Panthers not invited to Ken. All that's coming up in the second hour, so stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. Rick and I are going it alone again this week. I think Ron's out in L.A., but I'm not sure why. Goose, uh, any idea what he's doing out there? Clark, I'm sure it's something boxing-related because the yeah, only chance probably. to talk to some boxers would keep him from talking football with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure what he's doing out there either. You know, Goose, I was thinking, maybe he was with Robert Kraft at one of those Oscars parties. I don't know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's his kind of deal. Anyway, what I do know is that we've got a lot more in store for you in this hour with Hall of Fame voter Darren Gant promoting a Carolina Panther, or maybe Panthers for the Hall of Fame. So our best of the rest series rolls through Charlotte. Goose, what do you think? Sam Mills, Steve Smith? Julius Peppers, who? who? I think with uh, with Kevin Green finally off the books, uh, the only one really currently available eligible right now for Canton is Sam Mills. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure there are other candidates in the hopper waiting their turn to become eligible, and I'm sure we'll get those names from Darren. Yeah, well, it's it's always good to hear from him, uh, especially on this subject. But we're also going to hear from Buffalo quarterback Jim Kelly, who revealed last week that his oral cancer has returned. Now, what you're going to hear is a replay of our conversation with Jim last year, and we thought we'd play it again because of what he's been through, what he's about to go through, and, and because there are a lot, and I mean, Goose, a lot of people pulling for him. You know, we all thought, as I'm sure he did, that he'd beaten cancer the first time, so this is really indeed a setback. But, you know, Jim is one of the toughest players ever to line yeah. up at the quarterback position in the NFL. He didn't back down to the Giants, Redskins, or Cowboys in Super Bowls, and he's not going to back down to cancer now. Yeah, I agree with you, Goose. And you, and you know what? T- speaking of that, you got to like what happened this week. I mean, he was scheduled to appear at the Vince Lombardi Award for Excellence Dinner, and, and he was getting an award, as a matter of fact, and, and, and he did appear there. And, and what's more, he said he'd show up for his fishing tournament the next day. And, and you got to love this. He said, quote, if the good Lord decides tomorrow's my day, I'm going out with a fish in one hand and a cool beer in the other. You can't make that stuff up, Goose. Yeah, that's, that's Jim Kelly, though. That's why his teammates loved him. 
That's why the fans of Buffalo loved him, and that's why he's got a, can- a shot at cancer this time. He-, he lives life. He doesn't fear it. Yeah, it's Kelly tough. Anyway, best of luck on a speedy recovery, Jim Kelly. We're going to break for commercial, but when we return, you're going to hear why the clock is ticking on Tennessee's latest head coach. This is the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Gooseman, did you see where referees Jeff Triplett and Ed Hockley retired? Yeah, stunning. They've been around forever. You know, Hockley, I liked Hockley because he was always in the middle of a pack of penalties, but uh, Jeff Triplett, he's one of only two officials in the last five years with over 200 penalties each season. So, wow. goodbye wow. to Jeff Triplett. Yeah, you know, if another network besides Fox were smart, I, I think they'd jump into Hire Hockley. I mean, he's a recognizable name. I think he's pretty articulate. And everyone, I think, should be trying to find the next Mike Pereira. Maybe the Talk of Him network should hire Ed Hockley. Maybe we should, yeah. Do we have shirts that fit him, though? <laughs> oh, we can find some, I'm sure. Yeah, I, anyway, as we said uh, earlier, don't forget this weekend is the start of Daylight Savings Time. Uh, so move your clocks forward to accommodate what's ahead and goose. Speaking of what's ahead, what's ahead for your owner, Jerry Jones? I mean, I know he had a meeting with the commissioner this week, but he can't be all that happy about what's going on, especially with the suggestion that his colleagues are the ones who push the commissioner to have him pay for legal fees during that uh, Ezekiel Elliott suspension. You know, since the NFLPA was the group contesting the Elliott suspension, and Jerry apparently brought document documentation to his hearing, to that end, good luck collecting those millions. <laughs> now, these owners have short memories. Jerry Jones showed them how to market their teams and their stadiums in the 1990s, putting millions upon millions of dollars into the pockets of each and every one of these owners. And now they want to nickel and dime him on the legal cost of a suspension. These owners would be better served having Jerry Jones as a friend than an enemy. Hey, Gooseman, you presented him for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, at least to the committee. Could you have him put some of those millions of dollars into the pockets of the Talk of Fame Network? Uh, it would have been through my pocket first. <laughs> oh, yes, we wouldn't. There's a trickle-down effect around me. <laughs> hey, uh, given, uh, given what's going on there, I mean, between him and uh, Roger Goodell, and, and what happened last year when he suspended Elliot, when Roger suspended Elliot, what kind of reception should Roger Goodell expect when the NFL draft is held in Dallas? I guess it's going to be at AT&T Stadium in late April. But, I mean, he got booed in Philadelphia, right? Big deal. Santa Claus is booed in Philadelphia. But what happens in Dallas? You know, Clark, Dallas fans believe the suspension of Elliott cost the Cowboys a chance to win the NFC East and thus open the door for the Eagles to win their first Super Bowl. The fans here in Dallas have always hated the Eagles, but that hate may be a little stronger for Goodell these days. It will be <laughs> loud and ugly. But after watching last year, Goodell will encourage it, just as he did in Philadelphia. Nothing like a little passion to stir up an NFL draft. <laughs> Maybe we can bring Drew Pearson back again. Well, <laughs> oh, he'll up. be there. Guaranteed. He'll be there. Okay. Well, let's get off the politics of football move to the game of football. As you mentioned, the first hour, there was a significant event last weekend in Indianapolis. That would be the NFL scouting combine. And it yielded all sorts of information that will be regurgitated, guaranteed, in the next six, seven weeks leading up to the draft. So we know how fast some of these guys ran or how high they jumped. But what we don't know is about those guys who were not invited. And every year there are players who make NFL teams 
that never made it to the NFL Combine. Some very good players, in fact. You know, three-time NFL receiving champion Wes Welker, no combine. Former NFL Defense Player of the Year James Harrison, no combine. The all-time leading touchdown producer at the tight end position, Antonio Gates, no combine. In the top two scorers in the NFL this season, kickers Greg Zerline of the Rams and Steven Gaskowski of the mm. Patriots, neither one got an invite to the combine. Yeah, I want to get to those guys, but first things first, Goose. Uh, how do they decide who gets invited and, and who makes that decision? Okay, there are two central scouting agencies, Blesto and National. National is the larger of the two with 18 member teams, and that and National runs the combine. Each of the eight teams supplies a scout to the evaluation arm of National. They grade and scout all the players and provide that data to supplement the work done by each individual franchise. You know, the combine in Indy is the centerpiece of National's effort. They issue invites to about the top 300 players on their board, and the, the member teams can also ask that invitation be extended to players. So roughly you get 330 players each year at the Combine. Okay, well, you mentioned some pretty good non-invitees earlier. Um, we had a poll on our website last week, and that would be the network.com where we asked readers which of the listed non-Combine players did they consider the best, and it's a pretty decent group. Uh, Goose mentioned mm-hmm. most of them, Antonio Gates, James Harrison, Wes Walker, Chris Harris, Adam Thielen, O.C. Yermanuro was on there too. Um, but the winner, Goose, was... Gates in a landslide, and that kind of surprised me. I, I thought former Steelers linebacker James Harrison would have more support, as, as would Wes Welker, the Patriots. But Gates wound up with better than 60% of the vote. Didn't surprise me, Goose. I mean, how could there be anyone else? I mean, he may not have been invited to the combine, but he's going to be invited again, again guaranteed. Yeah, he holds the one record for the tight end position that Tony Gonzalez does not, those career touchdown catches, 114. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's at least a reason he wasn't invited to the Combine. This guy was an elite college basketball player yeah. at Kent State and a darn good one. He's an all-Mid-America conference player. But because he stood only 6'4", he knew he had no future in the NBA as a power forward, so he decided to pursue football. And the Chargers, to their credit, saw his immense potential. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and as you said, it's a pretty decent group. And I didn't right. mention Stephen Goskowski. You did. <laughs> who's also among the choices. But it's a pretty good group. And... You could find a decent, you could feel a decent all-star yeah. team from non-combine players. In fact, I remember tweeting out that question last week, and I asked, who's the best player not invited to a combine? You can vote here. Yeah, I wrote back, Johnny Unitas. <laughs> I went, okay, I'll buy that. You know, since the first combine was conducted in 1982, there are too many great players to count that did not attend a combine. Jim Brown would have gotten my vote. Yeah. Um, well, Goose, you follow this thing pretty carefully, and you, you always have. Who is the best player this year? Who was not invited to the Combine? Well, I'm partial to the Big 12 Defensive Lineman of the Year, Puna Ford at Texas. Nadamakan Sue, Brian Arakpo, and Adam Carricker all won that same award, all became first-round NFL draft picks. But Ford, you know, he had a perceived flaw. He's only 5'11", and that's considered way too short to play defensive tackle on Sundays. So no Combine, but you'll see him next fall. That's the signal that, that there's another invitation about to be sent out, and it's for Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Gosselin. Every two weeks, he checks in with something that's on his mind, and this time, Goose, I hear it's about a head coach who may not have a long time to spend in Tennessee. Yes, sir. Mike Vrabel is a new head coach of the Tennessee Titans, and he probably doesn't realize it yet, but he has two years there to succeed. That's how long the Titans gave his predecessor, Mike Malarkey, two years. That's how long the Titans gave Malarkey's predecessor, Ken Wisnut, two years. And Wisnut's predecessor, Mike Munchak, was given three years. 
probably in large part because he, he was a Hall of Fame player for that same franchise. So Vrabel is the fourth head coach of the Titans since 2011. Only seven of the 32 NFL franchises have not changed head coaches since 2011. Baltimore with John Harbaugh, Green Bay with Mike McCarthy, Cincinnati with Marvin Lewis, New England, Bill Belichick, New Orleans, Sean Payton, Pittsburgh, Mike Tomlin, and Seattle, Pete Carroll. All but Lewis, by the way, have won a Super Bowl. The Browns, Raiders, and 49ers also are on their fourth head coaches since 2011. Buffalo, Denver, Jacksonville, and Tampa are all on their third head coaches. In all, there have been 57 head coaching changes since 2011, an average of better than seven per season. And over a longer haul, Clark, there have been 130 coaching changes since the year 2000. Belichick, with his five Super Bowl rings, is the longest tenured head coach in the NFL at 18 seasons with New England. And since the Patriots hired Belichick in 2000, the Raiders have hired 10 head coaches. And of the 130 head coaching hires since 2000, only one won a Super Bowl in his very first season. That was Gary Kubiak of the Broncos in 2015. Malarkey departed the Titans this offseason after a playoff finish. Jim Caldwell was fired by the Lions in January after a winning season. There is only one form of job security in the NFL for head coaches and is not winning. It's Super Bowl rings, as Mike Vrabel will soon find out. Goose, you know, it tells me that uh, Jerry Glanville was right when he said NFL stands for not for long. He's absolutely right. Hey, a question for you. What, if any, role do you think the uncertain ownership there in Tennessee has in all these coaching changes? Oh, I think across the board, ownership has an impact. You know, once upon a time, these teams were owned by sportsmen, Hallis, Rooney, Hunt, Merrill, Ralph mm-hmm. Wilson. You know, they understood you can't win every Sunday. You can't win titles every year. But now, you know, the, 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 the modicum of patience is gone. You know, coaches would get four and five, six seasons back then to turn the program around. You know, all these businessmen buying in, uh, joining this ownership fraternity. Football is now a bottom line business. Coaches aren't hired to build. They're hired to win. When they don't, they got to go. So there is no longer any patience in this league. There is no longer any job security unless your name is Bill Belichick. Thanks, Gooseman. We got to go, too. We're going to take a break for commercial. When we come back, it's with Darren Gant. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you should, okay, as you might know by now, we're in the middle of a 32-week Best of the Rest series where we check in with Hall of Fame voters with each of the 32 NFL teams to get their takes on the best players from the clubs they cover who are not, and I said not, currently enshrined in Canton. And today, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Hall of Fame voter Darren Gant of Pro Football Talk. Darren, you're on with Rick and Clark, and thanks so much for joining us again. Absolutely. Good to talk to you guys. Hey, Darren, for the longest time, you were fighting the good fight as a Carolina advocate to get Kevin Green into the hall. You know, a few years back, that became a reality. With Kevin now wearing that gold jacket, who is the best Panther not currently enshrined in Canton? Well, you know, we've got to go. I would say there are two answers to that question. One of the, the first answer is probably Steve Smith, and he's going to, and Julius Peppers, and he's going to. But the guy who's eligible right now, who, who is not in, and, and I think deserves a really strong conversation, guys, is Sam Mills. I mean, Sam is 
Um, we caught the tail end of Sam here in, in Charlotte, but with what he meant to the Carolina Panthers organization, both as a player and a coach, he just made an incredible impact on this franchise here because, A, the way he played football in the early years. He was the centerpiece of the team Bill Polian put together as an expansion team in 95 that was in the NFC Championship game in their second year. And it was just unheard of, the level of success they had so quickly. But Pauline decided he wanted to build around veterans, and he built that entire defense around Sam Mills. The guy was undersized. The guy was um, not the fastest linebacker in the world. But the thing about Sam Mills that I'll always remember, I mean, when he tackled someone, they stayed tackled. He did not take a false step. When he hit somebody, it was with authority. Uh, and he, he performed for such a high level at such a long time. Uh, when you count what he did in New Orleans in the days of the Dome Patrol when he was playing with Ricky Jackson, and, you know, since it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you know, I suppose you'd have to consider his time in the USFL, too, when he was one of the biggest stars in that league. And not bad for a guy who was about ready to give up football so he could teach shop and photography at a high school in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, I'm glad to hear you mention him because when we started our – State your case segments about what was it? It was four years ago or so. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the first guys that I wrote about, and I felt very passionately about him. And for the same reasons you say, and I went back to right. the Philadelphia Stars, for instance. But uh, I think of him throughout his career, and I look back at 1994, and I started covering the 49ers then. And I remember Sam because he was in their division, you know, whether it was with New Orleans or Carolina. Sure. And that year, with the advent of free agency. You had the salary cap, and, and because of that, everything changed, and now players you see are moving constantly. So my question to you, Darren, is how much do you think it's hurt Sam's candidacy that his tackles and his Pro Bowls and everything else were spread over not one but two towns and two franchises, New Orleans and Carolina? Well, we talked about Kevin a second ago. Kevin played for four, uh, and it didn't hold him back. I, I just think one of the things that's tough uh, for Sam is the position. I mean, he, you know, this year we put in Ray Lewis and Brian Arlocker, but it's hard for a lot of times for those guys. I mean, I think Sam's very comparable with, like, a Chris Hamburger. I mean, somebody's, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of towns have that guy who's that signature middle linebacker. In Charlotte, we've had a number of them pass through here, but Sam is just, um, like I said, I think he's kind of on the fringes in a lot of people's minds, but it's, it's not an easy counting stats case. I mean, because tackles are one of those things, depending on who's counting them, who do you trust, you know, which one do we count for an assist, that kind of thing. It's a real, it's a very esoteric thing. And frankly, raw tackle numbers can be really deceiving because if you were on a good defense, you're getting off the field on third down and you don't have as many chances to tackle people. So, you know, there were a lot of years when a lot of linebackers would have more, but they didn't mean as much. And I just, I look at Sam, it's kind of a, one of the things I think is interesting about our process and what we do is it's a blend of the art and the science. Some guys get through on the sheer strength of numbers. Uh, some guys you have to measure their impact in different ways. And I think if you start talking about leadership, if you start talking about, you know, just the solid level of play for such a long time, I think that's where Sam's strength lies. You know, Darren, before we get to Steve Smith and Julius Peppers, I want to throw a name at you of a guy who's flown completely under the radar in the four years he's been eligible. He's one of the few players in Super Bowl history to catch a touchdown pass for two different teams. A player who at different times in his career has led the NFL in receptions, yards, and touchdowns, and that player is Moose Mohammed. 860 catches, 11,000 career receiving yards, 62 touchdowns. 
does his does career deserve some discussion? Um, you know, Moose had a really good career. I think he's one of those guys that fall victim to the traffic at wide receiver and, and those guys who build up such great piles of stats. I mean, he was a lot in a lot of ways like a Hines Ward, and he was such a physical receiver. Uh, being a blocker in the run game was such a part of what he did. But let's not sell him short as a pass catcher. I mean, when he was in the salary drive before he went to Chicago, he caught over 100 balls. Um, he, he had, or That was the 1,400-yard season, 100 yeah. pass. Uh, receptions was the year George Seifert came to Charlotte and had Steve Berline at quarterback and Moose had such a phenomenal year uh, then and he was just a part he was a well-rounded receiver good at a lot of different things very physical and had to overcome some injuries early on and, and put together a good long career I mean he um, I, I sort of think of him he's one of those guys almost like Keenan McCardle Jimmy Smith he's probably behind both those guys on the big counting list but because of because they were never the dominant receiver of their era, and a lot of times they were even complimentary receivers on their own team, kind of hard to judge him. You know what, Darren? Goose should have given you this, the disclaimer for that because Moose and Muhammad, he went to the same college that Goose did, Michigan State. That's what I I'm know. asking you about. Michigan State. Trust that's why I, I didn't know where he was going I with this. Moose and Muhammad. Wide receiver you. Wide receiver you. Unbelievable. I'm going to ask you, listen. I'm going to ask you about another receiver, a better receiver, Steve Smith. I mean, he's going to be eligible for the class of 2022. Now, he has 1,000 catches, almost 15,000. I'm sorry, 15,000 yards. Where, in your estimation, does he sit in the queue of Canton-worthy wide receivers, especially with Owens and Moss out of there now? Well, I, I think he's absolutely worthy, guys. I, I don't think there's any question about that. And and you mentioned the numbers, and Steve certainly got plenty of those. The the thing I will always remember, and I'm still at the newspaper covering those guys on a day-to-day basis when Steve's career began as a third-round pick who everybody thought was just going to be a punt returner and you know maybe contribute as a slot guy or something like that. Of the ten greatest catches I've ever seen Steve Smith make, three or four of them were in games. He was 100 miles an hour every day when he stepped on the practice field. He worked harder at his craft than anybody. He was a Richard Williamson pupil, uh, and Richard was a tough taskmaster. And Richard put him through his paces, demanded a lot of Steve, because he saw the possibilities Steve had as a, as a player. And he didn't... He didn't disappoint Richard by any stretch of imagination. He became a good route runner. He was a tough guy. I mean, he was literally one of the toughest players I've ever seen because to succeed at the size he did uh, speaks to his ability to take a lot of punishment. And the guy never played with great quarterbacks. Jake DeLone was pretty good. Jake had a good six, seven-year run there with the Panthers, and then he escapes to Baltimore and plays with Joe Flacco for a little bit, but neither one of those are elite guys, and Steve still put up a lot of numbers. One of the other things that stood out to me was he always played, whether it was in Carolina or Baltimore, on teams that preferred to be run first, that preferred to be defensive-oriented teams. I remember when he won the Triple Crown, led the league in reception yards and touchdowns in 05. I remember doing the research then, and he was the first receiver to do that on a team that ran more than they passed in terms of attempts, since Art Monk did it for Washington in the early 80s. So it's, I just think the guy had a remarkable career, had some injuries. I mean, if, if he didn't lose two prime, 
you know, prime earning of stat years to injury, imagine the numbers he would have put up, and, and it would have probably been a no-brainer when it gets to that point. I think it might take a little bit of discussion. Maybe, you know, I don't think it's a disservice to guys if they wait a few years to get in, but I, I think eventually he'll be there. Okay, Darren, we all know this committee loves pass rushers. And Julius Peppers is now fourth on the all-time sack list with 154 and a half. Now, he won't be eligible for the Hall until at least 2023. So do you think you're going to need five years to write your presentation for Peppers to the Hall of Fame selection committee? You shouldn't. Uh, you know, my presentation for Julius Peppers, I and this is one man's opinion, my presentation for Julius got a lot easier a year ago when Jason Taylor went in on the first ballot. I, I yeah. think, and this is no offense to Jason, also a great player, but Julius was better across the board and a more complete player, in my opinion. Um, Pat stacked up bigger sack numbers, and he may not be done. I mean, Julius is talking to those guys now and, you know, feels pretty good. He was a double-digit sack guy again at age 37, so, you know, there's no telling what he might uh, do. I, I think the guy's phenomenal, and, you know, to have seen it, you know, kind of the opposite problem from Steve Smith he came in pedigreed. He was second pick in the draft. He was all the athletes you'd ever want to see. He was probably a, a first-round pick in the NBA draft if he would have gone that route while being kind of a part-time player at UNC. You know, hey, Derek, I, I, mean, I can see it today. There was a there was a classic game in '03 that kind of sparked the Super Bowl run. They go to Tampa and and take out the defending champs. In uh, I believe it was Week Two on blocked kicks by Julius and Chris Jenkins in. Uh, into regulation and overtime to win down there on the road and really set the stage for that Super Bowl run in 03. Hey, Darren, I was going to ask you a quick question about Luke Keekley, but we'll save it for our next time with you. Maybe We could talk all soon. day about Luke Keekley. There's yeah, no I question about that. And, and um, they've got a couple guys on that current team with Julius, with, with Luke, and maybe Cam Newton one of these days. We're having this conversation again. Yep. Okay. Well, Darren, thanks so much for the time. And you know what? Give our regards to North Turner, would you please? Will do. I, I think North's going to do good things here. Yep. I hope so. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Darren. That was Hall of Fame voter Darren Gann at Pro Football Talk. Up next, it's our interview last year with Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly, who unfortunately is back in the news. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we interviewed Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly last April, and he was terrific. But last week, he delivered not-so-terrific news that the oral cancer that he'd fought and, and really seemed to have overcome, it's back. Now, he underwent surgery on his upper jawbone in 2013, then was diagnosed with a spreading cancer by the next year. But by November 2014, he declared himself cancer-free. And you know what? We hope to hear those words from him again, and soon. But in the meantime, we're going to play this interview we did with him a year ago and uh, sit back and listen to Jim Kelly because we enjoyed it from our conversation a year ago. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, 
Ron Borges, Rick Goslin, and Clark Judge. Just a reminder, the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by Grasshopper. Turn your mobile phone into a business phone system with Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Get a local toll-free number. Just bring your own. See how it works? Go to grasshopper.com. Well, you could say Jim Kelly started it all at the U because when Jim arrived in Miami at 1979 to play for Lou Saban, the Hurricanes hadn't been to a bowl game in 12 years. Two years later, though, Jim Kelly was the MVP of the Peach Bowl. And no surprise there, he had made an impact from the very beginning at Miami when his first star as a 19-year-old freshman when he upset Penn State 26-10. to 10. Of course, it was long before the U would become an NFL tributary, sending 26 first-round draft picks to the NFL in the 1990s, or 10 more than any other school. Jim, of course, was a 1983 first-round draft pick of the Buffalo Bills, where he had such an accomplished NFL career, including four straight Pro Bowl or Super Bowl appearances, sorry, that he was inducted in 2002 into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But today... He's here to talk to us about the U and how it and he all got started. So, Jim, thanks for joining us and get this huddle going, would you please? Oh, boy, I love it. Uh, even thinking about back in the U, uh, even though I probably don't remember some things about that, <laughs> but I do remember back in the day where, uh, you know, Lou Saban did recruit me, but to be honest with you, the guy that got it all started was Howard Schnellenberger, and I'm so blessed that I had, you know, throughout my career, whether it was high school, college, USFL, and the NFL, I have been blessed to have great, great head football coaches. And, it, you know, it definitely all started with my high school football coach, Terry Henry, who really taught me the word, uh, the words I said, work ethic. And if I wanted to make it, I had to work at it. But, uh, there's no doubt that I rub it into a lot of people when I say I'm from the U. So, yeah, that was bringing back great memories. How does a guy who, you you were at East Brady High School outside of Pittsburgh, you were the All-State quarterback, you threw for nearly 4,000 yards and I think 44 touchdowns, you wanted to go to Penn State, everybody out there wants to go to Penn State, but you didn't go to Penn State, you ended up at the U. How did that happen? Well, the to be honest with you, where I'm from, uh, south side of Pittsburgh, you're either Pitt or Penn State fan. And I've always been a Penn State fan. I always loved Joe Paterno. I always wanted to play for the Nittany Lions. And I guess as, as time went on, as I continued to get older, I went to a football camp my junior, senior year in high school, thinking I showed them enough that I could play the position of quarterback. But unfortunately, well, I should say, unfortunately for Penn State, <laughs> um, uh, you know, he recruited me as a linebacker later on. I mean, he called me and said that, uh, you know, we've already signed two all-state quarterbacks, but we'll give you uh, a scholarship as a linebacker. And, of course, first thing I did was I have three older brothers. I called my oldest brother, Pat, who played for, you know, the uh, NFL. I didn't play a long time, but he was drafted by the Baltimore Colts, and I called him and I said, Pat. Coach Saban just called me and told me that, uh, I mean, Coach uh, uh, Paterno just called me and he told me that, uh, you know, they've already signed two all-state quarterbacks, but they'll give me a, a full ride uh, as a linebacker. What do you think I should do? And he said, brother, I have a few words of advice for you. 
He said, before, you know, you board those chartered flights uh, for the away games, he said, the flight attendants never want to know who the linebackers are. They always want to know who's the quarterback. And uh, I said, that's enough said. I'm a quarterback, and uh, the rest was history. I went, uh, went on to the University of Miami and uh, had a great, great time. And not a bad career. I didn't play a lot of games there, you know, but, uh, you know, the start of Howard Schnellenberger coming in, bringing a quarterback coach by the name of Earl Morrill, who really taught me the pro-style offense. So it was a blessing. Yeah, but Jim, Penn State is linebacker. You, Joe, thought you were a linebacker. W- what gave you the conviction to pass on Penn State? Well, I really, you know, I played linebacker in college. I mean, in high school, I really enjoyed the position. I love hitting and not getting hit. But I knew in my heart I wanted to play quarterback. And uh, even though my brother said that, probably more as a joke than anything, that's what I wanted to do. I, I mean, I was in my backyard. I wore number 12. I, you know, put a magic marker. You know, growing up in Pittsburgh, I was a big Terry Bradshaw fan on the field. And then off the field, uh, I wanted to be like Joe Namath. I think everybody wanted to be back in the back in those days. And for me, it was fun. And uh, that's that's what my goal was. Come from a little dinky town in Pennsylvania. Not sure what situation was going to be in my future, but I had big dreams. And uh, you never know. I worked hard enough, and uh, you know, thank God it all came uh, came to the forefront. And I wound up, you know, being able to fill a lot of dreams. We're speaking with Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, Jim, as I mentioned when I introduced you, your first start was against Penn State. and You were 19 at the time, and I, I don't think you were supposed to win that game, but when it was over, Joe Paterno came over and shook your hand. What did you say to him or any chance you said to him, I told you so? One of those things I told you at the beginning, I don't remember a lot. <laughs> and the thing is, all I remember is my mom and my dad were there, My bro- you know, a couple of my brothers. And as a matter of fact, Coach Schnellenberger, before the game, uh, pregame meals, when it pulled me aside the night before, I should say, um, he, you know, hinted around he was going to make some changes in not knowing that that was going to be one of them was going to be me. Uh, he pulled me aside after a pregame meal, and he said, son, get, get ready. You're starting today. And the first thing I did was I went to the bathroom, and I threw up for about 20 minutes because, you know, I was, of course, nervous. 19-year-old, playing in front of, what, 80,000, 90,000 people. My first start ever against a coach that told me I couldn't – well, I guess I wasn't good enough to, to be the quarterback that he wanted on his football team. And, Wind up going out, as you stated before, winning 26-10, and that was my start of my college career. My, As a matter of fact, my four last games of that season, my freshman year, were against Penn State, Alabama, Notre Dame, and Florida. So it was a big-time welcome to the NCAA. Uh, Miami was 93-92 and 92 in those next two years, and could you see – what was developing at the U, and, and could you sort of ever think that they were going to end up becoming that, that program that, that, that they were for so long, producing all those great NFL players? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, we did. They they brought a lot of great players in. That you never know. I mean, you hope that you'll be able to be a big part of changing the program around. I had so many coaches when I was being recruited say, "Oh, they're going to get rid of football." You know, it's not a great university. And I bought into what Lou Saban said. He was, you know, he was a former NFL head coach. I, it's what my dream was. I mean, I went down there. I was recruited, you know, heavily. I, first time I ever really was in Florida. Never had lobster before. And, uh, you know, they picked me up with, I think, three or four Hurricane Honeys. Uh, and I go, where do I sign that? So that, to me, was pretty cool. Pretty good sunburn, though, not being a, you know, being Irish and being from Pennsylvania. I'd really never been to Florida. So, for me, that was a... Uh, a, a great surprise, and I loved it. But more importantly for me was the pro-style offense because I continued to have a dream of playing the NFL. Jim, your junior year, you did it again. Penn State was number one in the country. You beat them 17-14. You think Joe Paterno was getting a little tired of seeing you? <laughs> <laughs> he probably did back then, but I, I got to admit, you know, of course, you know, it just wasn't me. It was so many different players that we had. We had a good defense at the time. And um, we really didn't throw the football a lot. I mean, compared to nowadays, you have, you know, the, the uh, not only the run and shoot that was started coming in early, you know, probably in the 90s, but the no huddle offense and different things. And now you see so much uh, of a shotgun and everybody run that uh, different style of offense. We didn't throw the ball a lot, but we threw enough, to, I guess, to convince people out there that when I was a senior and I was up for the Heisman Trophy, that I might be able to do it. But, boy, I'll tell you what, that was a great time, especially being Penn State, especially when you look back and them not want me to play there and say I wasn't good enough. I mean, they never really came out and said that I wasn't good enough, but signing two All-State guys, and really, I think, to be honest with you, I don't think any of them really wind up playing. One turned out to be a receiver, and the other was a backup throughout his career. Hey, Jim, we've got about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about being that the first-round draft pick in 1983. I mean, after then, you, you began a parade of All-American quarterbacks to Miami, Bernie Kosar, Testaverde, Walsh, Eriks, and Gino Toretta. Do you take some pride in being the first and, and the one who got the U started? Yeah, I do, because I understand what the University of Miami is all about. They they call quarterback U. I recruited Vinny and Bernie the same year, told them both they have a good chance of starting like anybody would do, trying to get top quarterbacks there. But, uh, yeah, I do. And, and, you know, I spent some time with Bernie and Vinny and, I, I don't. I'm not there a lot as far as around those guys, but when we do, we reminisce about the good old days, have a little fun. But uh, yeah, because I always go around. I, everywhere I go, where there's somebody from the U, we take a picture. It's all about the U. And when I sign a court, uh, you know, I, whether it's a helmet, a football, whatever, if it has the U on it, I put. It's all about the U. <laughs> Hey, Jim, thanks so much for the time, and thanks for reliving the good old days for us. My pleasure, guys. You all have a good time. Uh, and, again, I have to say it's all about you guys. So <laughs> take care of yourself, and after 2017, we'll talk to you down the road. 
Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Jim. Jim. That was Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly. Up next, our Rick Gaza explains why, when it comes to the draft, teams love living on the edge. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, get those refs to do what they're supposed to do. That's the two-minute warning. Thank you very much. Yes, that means we're going to our two-minute drill, so let's get started. What's the next stop for Frank Gore? New England, where the Patriots fancy themselves as the last stop on the way to Canton. Why did the Cowboys forget to tell Demarcus Lawrence he was being tagged? That's what players have agents for. Hey, Goose, what did you make of Roger Goodell running the 40 in his office? There should be more pressing issues to be addressed in that NFL office than the commissioner 40 time running down a hallway. Yeah, I agree. TMZ says, quote, a high-ranking military official, unquote, cautioned the Baltimore Ravens from taking Colin Kaepernick last season. So who was it? Colonel... Clink. <laughs> Muhammad Wilkerson, Muhammad Ali, or Moosin Muhammad? Clark, I only heard one Spartan in that group, so I'm going to go with that Spartan, Moosin Muhammad. Good thing Ron's not here. Oh, good thing he's not here. The Jets reportedly afraid Kirk Cousins, that would be Spartan Kirk Cousins, is going to Minnesota. Is he? Give Cousins a red-striped short shirt, and for the next two weeks, he'll be Where's Waldo around the NFL. <laughs> right about that. So Josh Allen can throw a football 90 yards, Goose. So what? If nothing else, he can extend the NFL's range of the Hail Mary pass, and that will make for some exciting closing seconds. If Jimmy Garoppolo is worth $27.4 million a year... What's Aaron Rodgers worth? Well, for starters, Jimmy Garoppolo isn't worth $27 million a year. No athlete is. He may be paid that, but he doesn't mean he's worth that. Before exiting training camp, Russell Wilson, my favorite guy, left each Yankee assigned football. What did they do with it? I'm thinking all of them put those footballs on eBay by the end of the night. <laughs> Skittles sent Marshawn Lynch to a retirement community to test their sweet heat Skittles. Honest. So where do the Raiders send him? Back to Seattle. If the Arizona Diamondbacks can bring back the bullpen car, why can't the Patriots bring back the snowplow? Like Charlie Finley's mule, some iconic props should be left retired. Jerry Kramer was in Canada this week. It was best guess to what he did first. He went to the bus room to the Lombardi bus and told his old coach, I finally got here, to which the Lombardi bus responded, What took you so long? That's the end of the game. We want to thank Zach Thomas, Jim Kelly, Darren Gann, and Armando Salguero for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you want to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or dial us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, just tune in next week to this station at this time. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. This is Willie Anderson, formerly of the Cincinnati Bengals, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.